folks, welcome to the Thinker's Dialogue. It's absolutely a pleasure for me to welcome a dear friend all the way from Toronto, uh, uh, Dan Bresnitz. Uh, I've known Dan for a, about a decade, but I think we've not met in person for over a decade, but I think we've known each other for at least about a decade and a half. Uh, and uh, now this, because of this pandemic, I think uh, we just got connected together. I started reading his work and uh, quite interestingly, uh, one of uh, my very dear friends started talking about his book, uh, Christian Kettles. Uh, Christian is again, uh, you must have uh, uh, seen his session on the platform and that's where it was. But uh, other than that, if you really look at it, Dan is professor and monk chair of innovation studies at the Monk School of uh, Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Uh, he's also the co-director of the Innovation Policy Lab at the location. Uh, he does, he's fellow of the Canadian Institute of Advanced Research, uh, where he's co-founded and co-directs and the program on innovation, equity, and future of prosperity. So that is where he talks about inequality, possibly competitiveness, productivity, how things go well. And then he has done uh, three books. In fact, uh, uh, the books are Innovation in the State, Political Choice and Strategies for Growth in Israel, Taiwan, and Ireland, The Run of the Red Queen, and then Third Globalization. But most importantly, what we are really going to talk about today is his new book called Innovation in Real Places. Uh, strategies for Prosperity in an unfor Unforgiving World. Uh, I did go through the book. I must tell that it is one of an absolutely amazing read. In fact, uh, I was able to go through it in about five hours. I just did finish that in one sitting. So it was just a wonderful story. And I was just uh, telling Dan before the conversation that, you know, like there is so much application to his work in the Indian context. Uh, but having said that, we'll quickly dive into the conversation with Dan. I'm sure he will talk about a few things from the book. That is what we are really trying to keep the conversation around today. So Dan, uh, my first question, like uh, what motivated you to really look at this idea, innovation in real places? So uh, as the title, right? Innovation in real places, I think says it all. Uh, so what happened uh, as I was doing the other books that you mentioned, and I uh, was, uh, singing the prizes of innovation-based growth in various places, uh, which should be sank, and the role of public policy and entrepreneurs working together to make it happen. Um, I also started to get worried for two things. One is what you mentioned. A lot of the places, but not all of the places that I studied, have started to become very unequal. So for example, Israel, uh, which you mentioned, have become, uh, while one of the most, if not the most innovative economies in the world, also one of the most unequal within the OECD. That's one. The second, I have realized that people finally understand that innovation is uh, the main engine of prosperity and long-term growth. And yet we, the people who actually study innovation, are doing a really, really bad job at explaining our research to people who make decisions. So there's a huge amount of research by myself and others, which actually tells you all the many options that you have for your community to have innovation-based growth. And yet none of it is written in a way, or most of it is not written in a way that people like yourself in your other hat or mayors or governors uh, could use or understand or even concerned citizens. 
Uh, and the result is that everybody sort of assumed for a very strange reason that innovation means that you have to look like Silicon Valley and that innovation is invention and they don't understand the difference. So I sat down to write a book that translates a lot of my research and the research by others as to what does it mean to have innovation-based growth? How can you have an innovation-based growth that actually create prosperity for all your citizens, not just you know, what I call the nerd elites? Um, and um, what are the options for community leaders? So mayors of cities, not the US president, you know, like we economists like to claim that we have an ideal, no. You know, the mayor of Hamilton nearby Toronto, the mayor of Pittsburgh, the mayor of Ahmedabad, what can they do in order to have innovation-based growth in their society? So what other leverages they have and they don't have? Uh, and what other models they have in a world which, as you have said, is, is extremely globalized, production has changed, and it is not clear how innovate translate to growth local, right? Not in some other place in the world. And that's what the book is about. It's an innovation in real places, not imagined places that think they, they can become Silicon Valley in five easy steps in two years. So, you know, I, you're talking about something very important and uh, everybody wants to actually be a Silicon Valley in the world. And one of the biggest things as researchers or as people who are working in the area, uh, you have to tell them that there are some antecedents to a location for becoming a Silicon Valley. There is something that happens. Uh, you just can't really, Shenzhen is Shenzhen, um, Palo Alto is Palo Alto, or Pittsburgh is what it is, or Mumbai is what it is. How do we explain it to them that there are those antecedents that drive how innovation happens in a certain location or what kind of innovation happens in a certain location? So first of all, I think we have to explain to them what is innovation and why they want it. Because once they do that, one of the first things that happen is that they no longer want to be Silicon Valley. Because as you know, because you've been in Silicon Valley in Stanford, Silicon Valley, if, if, if you go down that model, you unsure that your society will be un, unbelievably unequal. So the graduate of Stanford and Berkeley and the VCs we live in unbelievable wealth. And the people who actually care for the valley either sleep five hours away or in their cars because they, they cannot afford anything else. Um, so that's the first thing. And I think what we have to then to remember what is innovation and what is invention. And I think COVID-19 actually is a great example. Uh, Invention is coming up with the idea, right? Innovation is the whole process of from that idea to products and services in the market that actually reach people. And then the constant improvement changes, uh, recombination of them and how you serve them and after sale and all the rest. And the great example that we have now is a vaccine. I mean, it's lovely to invent a vaccine. But the problem wouldn't be solved until you innovate all around the production, global production network, so every human on earth actually have an access to vaccine. Uh, and that's where 
real growth happen? When the rubber hit the ground, not when you have free Stanford graduate writing another app to get you cooked food from your favorite restaurant in five minutes. No, that's very fascinating. And you, you also said something very important and I, I, I have to ask you that question. And that was inequality. That places are becoming more and more unequal. Uh, you said like, of course, like when you talk about Israel, which is one of the most innovative places, uh, supremely unequal. Uh, probably you have, uh, and when you talk about Palo Alto, or the Bay Area, or the Silicon Valley. In fact, I, I stay there as well at, for many months in a year, uh, teaching at Stanford. And, but then the question here is that, exactly to what you say, uh, that people are sleeping in the cars, and it's deeply disturbing as to what is really happening. Uh, a person who makes less than about $140,000, $150,000 in a year is possibly a person below the poverty line in that location. So how do you really solve that problem? Or how do we really get over this problem or issue of inequality and innovating, innovate alongside. So, so again, let's remember what the book is about. The book is about, and it's cynical in that way, but in a positive cynical way. It looks at communities and mayors, right? It doesn't try to solve the inequality problem of the whole world. This is what I do in CIFAR. This book is for leaders of certain communities, real places. In order to understand what happened, we have to understand how global production have changed. So if you look at the past, even in Silicon Valley, it is called Silicon Valley because the companies that were there actually used to do semiconductors and production in Silicon Valley. So when Apple first came to being, it produced, apart from its innovation and wonderful uh, computers, because it was just computers at the time, it produced a huge amount of jobs all around California and Colorado, employing thousands of people in the production of its computers and laptops. That has changed with globalization. What really now we have with globalization is that we have fragmented production into different stages. And the semiconductor industry is a wonderful example of that. If in the past you had to have in the same location all the production for a semiconductor and the final product like an Apple computer, what we have now, and you look at the semiconductor industry, you have Silicon Valley, you have uh, Taiwan, you have Korea, you have China and you have Israel. All of them have wonderful semiconductors uh, industries and yet, and some of them have exactly the same companies working in them. But that, yet, if you look at what they do in each of those locations, it's completely different. In Silicon Valley and in Israel, they do the invention. They put ideas for new things to put on silicon. And then they immediately, instead of production, moving it to Taiwan, where the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company and others make it into semiconductors. Thousands of those very different semiconductors then go to China that knows how to take all those thousand different components and make it into a product that somebody can use. And in Korea, critical parts of that are being made, like memory or the screens that we love to touch all the time. Um, that's a completely different world from the point of view of mayors and communities of how to engage with innovation.
It means that you need to have a different model of innovation for each of those stages that I just described. So novelty, second generation innovation, prototyping, assembly. And it also means that each of those stages give you completely distribution of, of wealth. In Silicon Valley in Israel, part of why you have this growing inequality now is that you have unbelievable jobs, but only for R&D, their financiers, the lawyers, and their celebrity chefs. All other jobs, immediately when they finish, move away. Mm -hmm. Silicon Valley companies produce a huge amount of jobs, but they don't happen in Silicon Valley. They happen somewhere else. Um, other places, for example, Taiwan, um, produce a huge amount of very good jobs for high-end engineering based on constantly innovation on the production. And as you might have read the news from the United States, this is actually given now, and that's one other thing places should think about, power. It is now the United States that is begging Taiwan, a Taiwanese company, to open facilities for semiconductor production in the United States because most American companies can no longer master that innovation. So we need to rethink about innovation. We need to rethink about how innovation translates to growth and jobs in our community if we want our community to be prosperous. Mm -hmm. So Dan, you, you made a very important point and you did talk about stages of uh, innovation. Now you were saying there are four, four uh, production stages that you're really talking about. So could you tell a little more about it? Because you, you very quickly went through it. There's something very important here that is happening, like novelty, design, uh, production and component innovation or assembly. So that, that's what you're exactly talking about. Sure. So um, in a way to think about it, you can think about uh, the, the, the journey of a product or a service from the first thought, right? Somebody thought, oh, that's a good idea, to actuality. And then the hundreds of years in which we actually improve it. Okay? Um, if you just think for a moment, because innovation doesn't stop. Just think for a moment about things like bicycles and how much innovation and change we have seen them in the last 20 or 30 years, okay? But let's talk for a moment just around your stages. Let's uh, uh, stop in semiconductors. So the first stage is the stage of, as I said, novelty. Somebody thinks about new things to do with semiconductors. They usually end up with blueprints, which is basically looks like a software code those days, okay? It's designs, but it's basically a code. And then that moves to the second stage. And that is the people who actually know how to prototype and produce it, okay? Which now no longer happen in the same place. Those people then prototype it and produce it and design it. Uh, then usually um, you need to take all those different components, right? And put them together in a product. And then you need to produce a product. Now, it is usually not the first um, 
product that actually create the market and do the innovation. So for example, this is, this is a phone, right? This is what we call smartphone. If you think for out probably several billions of hours of engineering, every year, a smartphone would still be a wooden box on the wall, right? Um, those are the things that happen in what I call stage two, stage three, stage four, right? It's a constant improvement of what it is that you do with a phone, how you do it, how you produce it, how you sell it, how you maintain it, how you services. Uh, those are the things that actually create economic growth and wealth, not just coming up with the idea. Uh, if you want to, let's talk about, to, to make it more concrete, let's talk about an industry which is very traditional. So luxury woman shoes, okay? If you might uh, look at the reality TV, and I know, Amit, that you love reality TV, there's a designer, right, in New York or London and Paris, and they're very unique and very different, and they come, and within an hour or two or 24 hours, depending on the program, they come up with a beautiful woman's shoe, which is like, that's called bullshit. Uh, what really happens is you have those designers, right, they design the shoe, but they have no clue how to make that design into a shoe that you can produce in a certain price range uh, for thousands, several thousands of them. And the woman who buy that shoe can actually put her leg in and walk with that shoe. Because if you buy a shoe for a few thousand euros, you prefer to walk on it for at least several times, maybe more without it breaking apart. And, various other things. So there's that stage, right? The people who design the shoe. Then there's a prototypers and the assemblers. They look at that and they say, okay, this is a wonderful design. How do I make this into a real product? What materials I need to use, how to make them work together, done that. And then there are people who then figure out how to produce it for the thousands or hundreds of thousands, or in the case of electronics, billions. And then there are people who now figure out how to market it. So your wife, for example, will tell you, Amit, I don't like that shoe, but that shoe is really cool. And you're going to spend 4,000 euros buying that shoe for me. Thank you so much, dear. Very interesting. And but as you were talking about a very traditional industry, I have to take you back to um, an industry that you really lovingly talk about in your uh, book, and that is bicycles. Mm -hmm. And you, you know, like what you're really saying is that even a very small thing like, say, bicycle gears or mm -hmm. what Shano is doing uh, was something about real innovation, something very interesting because it transformed the industry. Uh, but then, how, how did the city or how did the location really go about doing it? Because what I'm really going to ask you the next is beyond this is that in India, if I really want to juxtapose your thing or your idea to India, like we've had some great ideas that have emerged over a period of time, but we have not been able to take it to that global scale from a production point of view. Say, so why does that actually happen as well? 
So let me let me instead of of Shimano, which I think most people know, or at least most people who ride bicycle knows that because it says Shimano inside, like Intel side in your computer, and they do most of the gears and the power system in almost every bicycle on there. Let me instead talk about the real innovation in the bicycle itself, material science, and the fact that now everybody can go and have a mountain bike, for example, or an electric bike. And, and the reason I want to do that is because it gives you a model of innovation which does not look like Silicon Valley, but it was what I call stage two or stage three, and that is Taiwan. So the Taiwanese, in a very similar way into which they attack the semiconductor industry, sort of figure out what activities they want to do in Taiwan by Taiwanese, have used the same tools also for other industries. So Taiwan, uh, or I should say a very specific part of Taiwan and Qingzhou, uh, have a, one of the world's most uh, advanced and I think uh, forward-thinking public research institution, ITRI. Um, for those of you who knew, knows Germany, ITRI is basically the Fraunhofer of Taiwan. And what it does, it takes various technologies from electronics to, in this case, material science, start to play with them, and then work with companies to put them into the market. <clears throat> and what happened in Taiwan, is that Taiwan was uh, um, producing bikes for American companies, the Taiwanese companies that were small and completely dependent, no innovation. They saw how the market has changed and that because they have no innovation, the Americans will move to China pretty soon. And they engaged with that public research institution and says, our strength, we cannot compete with Shimano on power supply. We cannot compete on cost. What we will compete is figuring out how to put new materials into the bikes that will allow us to differentiate and create different subset of bikes, if you will, right? Because a bike, what is a bike has been you know, invented 200 years ago. Um, and then they started to create groups of material science. Um, creating materials like carbon and forced steel, aluminum, um, and infusing that into the company. And that allowed the Taiwanese company to suddenly start coming with frames that are stronger, uh, a lot, the weight, they're a lot, they're really lightweight, you know, uh, what would need a huge man to, uh, take to the mountains so it wouldn't, you know, break can now be taken by a child and is actually probably safer and stronger and completely reinvent themselves and the global bike system. Again, in material science. Uh, and I think that's where, and that's a wonderful example of how a community can think about it. They can think about the industries that either they have now or industries that they think that they have a capacity to engage with, figure out how it works now and says, in which of those stages we can become more innovative than anywhere else in each of those stages. So we can offer either differentiation services, like we will be your 
producers, but nobody can compete with us because it's not just because we have cheap labor. Or because we do this stage so well, we can actually come up with new, completely new products or new version of a very old product like duck. And with that produced a, a large amount of good long-term jobs for people who are not just the graduate of MIT, Berkeley, Stanford, and you know, Institute, Indian Institute of uh, Technology. So, you, you know, like this is very powerful as an example, Dan. Just a curious question, and if, if you want to answer this. You know, like in India, we have had a great sports goods cluster or a spare sports good industry at one point in time. Uh, and somewhere in the 1970s, they were making the largest number of badminton rackets in the world. And at that time, we were talking about wooden uh, rackets. And then technology changed and people started moving into carbon, graphite, and all those kind of things. And we missed the boat on that. Uh, why do locations miss the boat? Like, what, what is it? Because you're giving a very powerful example that here is this place called Taiwan, which finds this uh, what you call amazing technology, uses material science, transforms itself as to what it was, creates an industry, and look at well, look what has happened to them. Voila. Uh, every bicycle today is effectively getting made in Taiwan. If you use a giant bike or you use a, a, what you call a trek or whatever, Cannondale, everything's getting made there. But in, in the Indian context, we somehow miss that. What What is it that we need to do or what locations need to do really not miss this kind of an opportunity. So let's just use for a moment, right, as a tool, that example of Taiwan. So first of all, just in those five minutes we talked about Taiwan, we had two things that you didn't mention in India. We had collective actions of the industry itself, a full understanding that the industry is constantly changing and there's need to be thinking about it, not wait until after it change. But then there's another thing, and that is a public research. In the case of Taiwan, it's a public research institute or a, a public agency in a public policy that work with them together and basically allow that industry to recreate what you and I will call public or semi-public goods constantly infuse innovation into the industry, help collective action, and help the industry co-evolve in tandem with a global industry, sometimes actually before the global industry. What you described, and I don't know the history of your case, you describe a case of a cluster of companies that were stuck doing what they were doing, got completely blindsided and no help and I heard no connection to any institution, university, agency that could actually infuse them with innovation and the skills we should not assume private companies have. Private companies, especially in production, we sh should not assume that they would behave like an R&D unit because they are not. That's not what they do. That's where public policy comes from. That's how collective action, public-private, come from and to solve those issues that one or two companies cannot solve by themselves. And that's, that's the real leadership role 
of either elected leaders or business leaders is to make that collective action happen, realize what is missing and what is not, and figure out whose role, public, private, or both together, is to solve that market failure, network failure, public good failure that, that individual actors cannot solve by themselves. This is very fascinating in terms of like what, what you're really suggesting. But I do have to ask you a question here in terms of, say, when you talk about innovation per se and R&D, uh, am I right in understanding that quite a lot of it is not going to happen within private enterprise? It's actually going to happen and driven through public money or public investments or in university that is going to drive change? So two things, A, and again, this is something that unfortunately I think too many places in the world got confused. Uh, universities and research universities, it, it's in their name, right? It's, they are research universities, so they're higher education and research. Yes, they do research, and that's what they're extremely, if you let them, good at doing. Uh, but what they're not or should not do is start to behave like a private business. So I have met too many places in the world, including Ontario, by the way, where I am, where every time something bad happens, there's not enough innovation, the, and I have no clue why, people assume the university, universities, public universities, that most of what they do is teach tens of thousands of students and do fundamental research, somehow will become the best businesses in the world. And it's beyond my belief how that illusion happened. But you need, so yes, you need universities, you need the eateries, you need others, again, depending on which stage you work, but you also need private industry. With all the wonderful things of eatery, please notice one thing that I never said, and that is that eatery decided uh, and managed to sell the products, develop the final bikes. No, what eatery did is when those companies came to eatery and they said, we have this problem, eatery said, okay, here are some options. We can think about material science, we can work with on that. Eatery never said, okay, I will solve it. Let me come back to you with six months with a new bike, okay? And that's, that's, that's the, the, if you want to do the magic sauce, look at Silicon Valley, okay, for a moment. Stanford is very important. Berkeley is very important. The students are very important. Without Stanford Berkeley being two of the top research universities that do fundamental research and have Nobel laureate winners, not necessarily in economics, but in real science, um, you wouldn't be able to get the graduates that work in that level of innovation, novel product innovation. But those graduates and those companies don't stay within the universities, right? Um, you need to figure out for yourself and your communities, what is, where do you play? What should be the role of private companies? Uh, if 
if you're in Silicon Valley, you should assume that those companies will do much more R&D and much more high level R&D. If you're in this assembly stage or uh, second generation innovation stage, yes, they will do a lot of R&D, but it will be a very different R&D. You should not even assume that they have a capabilities of going into the labs in Stanford and immediately understand the research, which is what basically happens if you now take Google research and bring those people to university, it's more or less the same people. That does not happen if what you want to do is to produce luxury shoes for the next 200 years. Mm -hmm. So interesting, Dan. And, but coming to this whole process and how, how things really happen, like you, given the pandemic, uh, we've had a very difficult time across the world. Uh, but there's something very beautiful that has happened in terms of saying that the vaccine got developed in very, very quick time. In uh, once the pandemic started, when people realized that there is something that is happening, and when who declared the pandemic in March, to something like a vaccine happening in absolutely no time. And today there are countries which are going to get fully vaccinated in the next few months and everything. How do you really look at the process there from your perspective? What happened? because it was also a collective effort across the board. It couldn't have happened in one location. There was, there was so much that is happening. And how does it really uh, get attached or looked at from a lens of what you call as the transformation that has actually happened, happened in the world? And you use that uh, idea, the transformation or fra fragmentation of production. Sorry, not transformation. So, yes. so, so, so let, let's be honest and look at the Operation Drop Speed, right? By the United States government, actually even the Trump administration. And most people focused on the high end. Oh, look what they've done with Moderna, mRNA, and all the rest. What almost everybody missed is uh, that in order, let's just talk about the um, mRNA vaccines. You had to develop a completely new set of technologies from the vial and the glass in which you actually hold those vaccines, right? Uh, cooling and all the rest. And you look at what RapSpeed has done. They didn't stop just with Moderna and helping them develop the vaccines. They figure out what are the needs for that vaccines to actually be distributed. And they gave, they engage with companies all around the production network. Uh, there is a beautiful story by one of my co-authors, David Adler, which I hope he will publish soon, on a company which basically is called CIO2, uh, which if you know chemistry, you know what it means. And what they did is develop a whole new set of vials so you and I and everybody else can get the mRNA vaccines, right? They can, can take the mRNA vaccines and move it around the world. Um, and I think that's what was beautiful about this vaccine and, and, and maybe some of the not beautiful about vaccines. Is, so the beautiful is when we realize the fragmented production and realize we need to work not just with R&D in the universities, but also with the people who produce not just the vaccine, but even small components of the vaccines, collective action and innovation all the way. 
When that happened, beautiful results. When we forgot that we need to produce billions of billions of those vaccines and distribute them around the world, we got horrible results. So what I think this vaccine showed us is two things. A, it's not invention, it's innovation. And innovation is a very different thing than sitting in the lab and coming about things. It's the actualization of those ideas in reality so we can touch every human being. It is globally fragmented around the world and you need global supply networks to make those things happen. When this realization happened and locales and countries work on making that happen, great things happen. As soon as people started to realize this is a very, very fragile system and said, I want to be first, we started to have national vaccine diplomacy and people are dying, as you know. So that's interesting. And, but then I have to ask you this, and that is the role of intellectual property rights and how we have to fight the pandemic. Because given innovation, invention, what we are really talking about, the discovery of the vaccine, the processes, but there is an important role of intellectual property. And where do you see that? Because and I'm asking that question for a simple reason that there is this whole huge debate and that is also happening in the world that uh, we should actually waive the IP rights here or not given the situation, uh, it should happen and so on and so forth. So where, where do you really look at this? So, so it's, 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 I think it's two different questions. First of all, and as you know in the book, uh, so the book after I tell the real story of what should be done, I said, okay, as, as the mayor of Ahmedabad, or the mayor, uh, which city in India you prefer I talk about as an example? Amit. Oh, you can talk about Bangalore, Ahmedabad, Delhi. Okay. No problem. So the, as a mayor of Bangalore, there are three domains which, on which as a mayor or even the governor of that state, you have, or even as a prime minister of India, you have zero control. They're essential to innovation and they're completely dysfunctional from your point of view, meaning creating innovation-based growth. Those are finance, intellectual property rights, and data. So what you need to know, because they're essential, is how they work, and then figure out ways to gain the system, okay? So that's constant. And I want to make it very clear we have a completely, globally, completely dysfunctional IPR system, which not, should not surprise you because we now have several hundred years of IPR. Basically, modern patents were invented by the Venetian Republic, almost very similar to the way that we use them today. And throughout history, you saw those pendulum between having a reasonable system that does what IPR system does to a system that actually create massive rents and monopoly. And we are now in the massive rents and monopoly. And I think we actually stuck worse than what we were ever stuck. Okay, so that's to the side and we can talk about it. On the vaccines, 
I find it curious that people are so obsessed about those IPR at the moment for two reasons. A, um, I'm not quite so sure because it was so fast that there's a lot of patents and IPR already, you know, granted for those things. As we both know, there has been already a reverse engineering of the vaccines by Moderna and anyone who wants to know exactly how it is made, I mean, what the molecular is, not how it is made, sorry, can just go online. The problem is not that. The problem is in the production. There are very few companies in the world that operate in a very few locales that can actually produce mRNA. And even those companies cannot produce enough. So waiving the IP, at least on those two vaccines, I, I know that the third one is coming because I know who's doing clinical where, and it will be probably the next one will be fully German mRNA vaccine, which might by the way explain why the Germans don't like to waive patents at the moment because they haven't yet made their profit, but that's a cynical to the side. Um, the problem is not that if I'll give you all the patents, suddenly we can produce billions of vaccines in Ghana and Central Asia. We can't because the real problem is in the IP, if you will, the intellectual property, the tacit knowledge and, and, and the capital equipment of making it. Maybe we can do something with all technologies. Maybe if we waive the patents, uh, you know, generic drug manufacturing, again, especially for the old technologies, can come up with several months, within several months, vaccines. Um, but that's not really roadblock. And I'm, as a slightly cynical political economist, just wonder whether this is not a diversion. And if people are really serious about having more vaccines, why not invest in massive production infrastructure for those vaccines in more locales instead of wasting our time talking about waiving patents that no company from a developed country can utilize in the next five years? Wow, that, that's a, I think I agree with what you're saying. Like there are absolutely no capabilities that we have right now. So it's, it's diverting the debate, like it, it does that. But now I have to ask you a question, which is a much more tough one and put you in the corner. Now you have to go and explain this to Joseph Stiglitz. How will you do that? To explain what to Joseph Stiglitz? What, why the IPR system, the global IPR system is completely dysfunctional? Yes, that's what he says. And then he says like, we should remove all barriers. And that is one, going to be one of the ways of solving the problem. So uh, um, maybe in the long term, I don't know about all the barriers. The problem, as I said, and we'll say to Joe if, if I meet him, I don't think I have met him for eight years now. So we, the two of us are also not alone. That um, this is lovely, Joe. But unless you, all, you also fix all the capabilities of the fragmented production of the vaccines and fix them extremely quickly, just waiving the patents would not work. Mm -hmm. If you're talking with me, Joe, about how do we ensure innovation-based growth and the opportunities to have 
innovation-based growth would create wider prosperity all around the world. Yes, I'm completely with you. We have a dysfunctional IPR system, which no longer does the two things that an IPR system needs to do. And the things that the IPR system needs to do is to give incentives to innovators so they innovate more, but at the same time create massive and wider diffusion of said innovations. Because as we just said, if innovation is not diffused, if the vaccines are not given to everybody, who cares? There will be no good spillover. Right, a lot of it. What innovations does is what we, uh, an economist, call spillover effects, positive spillover effects. For a less technical term, wide diffusion, so everybody can access and play with it. A good IPR system does both. Right, if you look at the old patents, and in the book I use the Levi's patents. Once you read the patents, you know you knew how to make jeans. Within, if you're a tailor within two minutes. And you can start innovating based on that. But you had to pay royalties and something to the inventors. It's solved both ways. We now have a system which is completely games to create monopolies and rents. Uh, we have patents, we have copyrights, we have trademarks. And look at how much they exploded all over the world in the last 10 years, then look at how much useful innovation and what you will see is the trend of IPR goes like this and the trend of innovation is almost flat. Partly because you've just created so much IPR, you actually make it a lot harder to innovate. And even worse, you the, 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 the money that comes from those innovation and the people that want to innovate a lot of it is diverted as rents to people who never had any intention whatsoever of actually innovating. That's very, very fascinating. And I, I think I'm convinced with what you're saying, like right? in that huge gap between IPR and innovation is there. But you also alluded to two more uh, things, and that was finance and data. Mm -hmm. And I think somewhere in the book, if I remember it correctly, you have said there is something wrong with the financial model or the VC model that possibly exists. So, so right now, let's just let's instead of trying to fix all finance, just look at the VC model. And again, by the way, as as, as I said, some of my best friends are VCs, and if any of them will not behave like a real VC, trying to make as much money to me as an investor. I will immediately take my money away from that fund. That does not say that a VC is a tool, and I think this is the, the, the real problem. Uh, too many policymakers think that venture capital is not an industry that aims to make a lot of money, but it's a public policy tool. VC make money when they invest in a company, not in a product in a company, and then as quickly as possible, sell said company for a lot of money. And they couldn't care less whether that company created a lot of jobs, actually has any sales, do anything, okay? More than that, because of their model, and their model is basically trying to get that one company out of 10 
that is looking like a lottery win, several thousands of percent of profit. They are looking for companies that very quickly could scale up and again, and be sold for a lot of money. Those are exactly the companies in Silicon Valley that will not invest a huge amount of money in very slowly growing in capital equipment in production facilities. Those are the companies that concentrate on high-end R&D, um, coming up with a product that they don't produce, selling it, uh, and then running as quickly as they can to a financial exit. Mm -hmm. Most of them prefer being bought than going for an IPO, because then you can just retire with a few billion dollars. Um, that's very good, but what does that model now entails is that the VCs will give a huge amount of money to the people who just finished the best universities on earth, so not exactly the people you and I should worry about. Mm -hmm. Those people, and that's basically what happened now in Silicon Valley. So you have a graduate of the best universities on a daily basis, having wonderful jobs, inventing stuff, basically earning wonderful wages. They also have a lottery ticket called stock options. So they might become billionaires, okay? And then you have everyone else. Those companies, do not produce, apart from maybe a few cleaning jobs, and as I said, a celebrity chef or two, and a you know internal designer, do not produce jobs for anyone else who doesn't look exactly like themselves and their finances in Silicon Valley. Okay, they might produce a lot of jobs elsewhere. And that's the proper problem of the current model of VCs and how they make money. And again, it's not a problem for them. It's a problem for policymakers who don't understand that, okay? We no longer are in the world, I have met Frederick Adler, right? One of the four, the, the fathers of VCs. He used to uh, basically make sure that his funders know how the, what he expects of them. He would go to his office and he had massive cushions and in red written on them, uh, positive cash flow is corporate happiness. I don't think that currently there's any VC who even think that the companies that they invest in should think while they're under his or her uh, control about positive cash flow. Mm -hmm. over creation of jobs or figuring out how to become a real business. Uh, and that change for whatever reasons have not yet been recognized by policymakers that wants VCs to come to them. Okay, so the real problem is if you're successful, you have a lot of inequality. The second 
it's a massive lottery system with only the best of the best VCs making money, all the rest are losing money. And the only people, as I said, who get lottery tickets are the graduate of the IITs in India. So if you care about anyone who is not IIT, and if you care about sustained growth and a lot of prosperity based on innovation, giving a huge amount of public money to venture capitalists might not be the best way to move forward. So how do we, this is a very interesting point that you're saying that it, it's probably the, the wealth gets uh, to some of the most intelligent people or the top institutions or uh, whatever. And that actually in turn creates a lot of disparity. And the valuations possibly are obnoxious, which we just don't understand as to why they're happening. Uh, and it does create inequality in turn. And so this model is somehow deeply flawed. Uh, and if we don't really go, uh, what do you call, set this model right at this point, in time, we might be talking about some very, uh, what do you call, critical social issues in the future. Uh, so it becomes imperative for us to really resolve this problem. How, how would you, what are those two, three steps that you really like to take to resolve this? So first of all, is it is absolutely, and I want to make it clear, it, the world need a few Silicon Valleys, okay? Because we have this global production network and the world need VCs, period. And they should be as cruel, as roughless as possible running through the financial exits. Period, okay? We should not change that. What should we change is thinking that this is a good idea to have it in Bangalore or in any other city. A, it's almost impossible. And B, if you're successful, and that's what most, you know, Calgary in Canada doesn't understand. If it will form itself into Silicon Valley, it will transform itself into ground zero of massive inequality and should not expect great thing happening to Calgary and the rest of Canada. Instead, there are other options of how to be extremely innovative, produce more jobs, and actually sponsor the growth of business models that do that. And while it is very cool to look like Silicon Valley, I thought that COVID-19 and the problem in semiconductors and the problem that in fifth generation, you know, mobile technology should show people who cares also about power and status uh, that being innovative in those other stages now enabling you to have a lot more power, a lot more jobs, and a lot more profits than some of the high end. So Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing, Huawei. And let's talk about Huawei for moment and fifth generation mobile technology. What America by blocking Huawei has really done is not hoping that an American companies will come up with the actual equipment to create 5G because there is no more American companies that actually know how to innovate in production. But instead they're betting that Ericsson and Nokia can do that. Last time I checked, those are fin the Finnish and Swedish company, not American. 
So what we need to realize as a mayor of Bangalore, Hamilton and all the rest is which stages of production we want to work in Excel in. What kind of companies and business models actually work in that way? What are their financial needs? And their financial needs do not look like a venture capital. How we innovate in basically innovation finance, right? Venture capital is a very, very old technology. It's 50 or 60 years old. It is time we, we innovate and create another technology of finance for the different stages of innovation. And those things have happened. Uh, there's new ways of thinking about how to use debt in Taiwan, in Israel, even in the United States. But you need to figure it all together in one locale. And, and, and I think the most important thing is have a vision. So if, if your friend, the mayor of Bangalore, call you tomorrow said, I want to have an innovation thing. I want in Bangalore to be an innovation hub. The first question shouldn't be, okay, great, let's do, but why? And if the aim is to create a prosperous, aglitarian, happy Bangalore for the widest array of Bangalorean, I would say, look at stage two, three, and four, innovate about that, forget about the IITs, forget about the Silicon Valley of the world. Let's figure out how we create companies that focus on business models that create a huge amount of jobs, a huge amount of profit, positive cash flow is still their corporate happiness, and routinize those kinds of innovation in Bangalore. I think this is so insightful, and I, I would really request everybody who's here with us today and who looks at this session on YouTube at a later point in time, you should read Dan's book, Innovation in Real Places, Strategies for Prosperity in an Unforgiving World. I think the ideas are fascinating and each one of us should really go through it and possibly ask our governments, ask our mayors, ask our city leaders, corporations to really understand what is being said here. But I have to ask you one last question, Dan, before we close this conversation for the readings. What are the three additional things that you would suggest that we should read? or three big books that you have read uh, that have just transformed your way of thinking over a period of uh, your work? So let's go, sure. So let's go to, uh, first of all, the classic. And this is Alexander Gershenkron. And the reason I want you to read Alexander Gershenkron, uh, people uh, view him as the father of late development. But one of the things that he realized that other people did not is that depending on your era, right? And where the technology is, you need to have different models of development. So in his case, if you, if you read deeply into his work, he says, unlike what most mainstream economists or Marxists of his time say is, look at England or the US and then you can see the future for all. He says, no, 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 no. The time you started industrialization, what we now will call innovation and growth, right? The time you figure out when to start playing truly matters. 
because the technology has changed, finance has changed, your capabilities have changed, and there's different models of growth, okay? And that's, that's a very powerful uh, lesson that I think has, not, has, has been forgotten when people, even his readers, have forgotten. A second, uh, completely different, is uh, I would highly suggest reading Karl Polanyi, Great Transformation. And the reason I want to, uh, people to read The Great Transformation, uh, and at least its first part, is, is that think about vision in the market. And, and that, that realization is that we are now in a market economy, but we are also a society. And you might not completely adhere to what he thinks, but realize that now that basically his, his vision that there will always be this double movement between over-marketingization and over-society. Both those extremes are not necessarily great, but once we move to a market economy, we need to figure this out. And if we go into one of those extremes too much, we should expect, even if things look great at the moment, massive political backlash because we are destroying our society. So when you think about innovation, growth and all the rest, you also need to realize you're talking about human beings and society and how to, how do you create a market, a successful market-based economy that does not destroy its society is a lesson I think we should learn. Um, last but not least, that's a tough one. Um, because I have only one book you say. Uh, Again, it might come as a surprise, but Martin Wolf uh, wrote a book in defense of globalization. Uh, Martin and I, I'm not sure, see eye to eye on many things, but I want all of us who from time to time want to destroy globalization from a moment, think about the fact that globalization has meant that for humanity as a whole, life has never been so good. The chances that you will grow to be an old man or woman when you're born and not die within days are vastly improved. The richness of your experience throughout your life and the opportunity, if we manage globalization right, is vastly improved. Uh, just think about it. A pandemic arrived a year and a half ago. We already have a vaccine. Yep. Uh, so I want us to defend globalization, but in a more Polonian way, if at all possible. And this has been so fascinating as an interaction. I think uh, a lot of philosophical ideas as to, uh, I would really say, like uh, very powerful philosophical ideas very transformative uh, if we are able to make an application of that. So uh, I think like we have discussed so many of these ideas and if we are able to really, if a mayor is able to look at just 10% of it, it can actually start a series of transformations uh, and things. And But then I think the end note in terms of like how we really need to defend as to what we really gained in the last few years. 
and not really go back to the relic of the past as uh, Donald Trump was really trying to do or whatever. We, there are huge positives that are happening there. So I think we should maintain that. We should appreciate what is there. And uh, I think uh, it's the innovation which is going to drive a lot of things. Uh, but then the question is going to be, what are those pockets that we need to understand? What are those stages is what we need to understand? So once again, would request everyone to read Dan's book. Dan, thanks a lot. It's been an honor to have you with us. Thanks for taking our time. You're very welcome. And hopefully we can meet again in person soon, like humans should. Absolutely. And I should be traveling to Toronto sometime soon. And we should really catch up. Thanks, Dan. Be well. Cheers. Bye.